Welcome everybody, I'm Joe Gillia and this is our Insights Edition where we want to learn and talk about all things elk and real special day today, uh, we're going to be doing a swap cast with Trevin Stolfus and Trevin is the host of the Outback Outdoors TV show on the Sportsman's Channel as well as he's a host of the Inspired Wild podcast. Trev, good morning. <laughs> it is a good morning. And, uh, you know, I wanted to make sure I said this, that when I take a look at the Inspired Podcast and I take a look at the goal of your show, it's devoted to helping others find their wild place, no matter right. where and where it is, and embrace the adventure. Right. And I, and I uh, uh, first of all, I, I want to just say thank you so much for reaching out to me and, and, and kind of planning this collaboration because I think it's great. You and I are, as you said before, uh, before we got on the air, uh, you know, here we're cut from the same mold right. and, uh, and we're, uh, uh, you know, new, fellow New Mexicans. Um, even though you didn't start there, you ended there and I haven't ended there. I started there. So um, I think our hearts are aligned in that regards. And, and, you know, with the inspired wild podcast, the whole reason we started that was uh, not because we needed another thing to do. Right. Uh, but, but we wanted to be able to connect um, with television. We've done a horrible job of connecting the whole adventure. What you see is 22 minutes. It's kind of like the social media of our life on the big screen or on the television set, you know, mm -hmm. in social media, you don't put all the junk, you don't put all the downtime, you don't put all the misses, all the frustrations, all the, uh, all the crashes, if you will, all right, the, right. you know, we only put the shining moments. And if you look at somebody's life through the social media filter, which um, Lord have mercy on our soul, if that's how we're <laughs> leading our life. Um, but, but you only see this, the good stuff. Yeah. And, life's not that clean, right? It isn't. And, and 22 minutes, you can't show an adventure. So for what we started doing was with the podcast was the whole idea was to come back to camp and tell the whole story. Now with that, what it turned into was a great opportunity for me to have some clean audio for the television show in future shows. So let, let's say I go and I film a TV show and, and, or, you know, a, a mule deer hunt, let's just say in, in, in right. Nebraska. And every, every night at camp, we've been doing podcasts. I can go in and pull some of that audio from that podcast to help tell the story. And then people watching get a real live as it's happening, or at least the same day. Let's yeah. be honest. We're not actors. No, we they get the good, bad, and, and the ugly, yeah. right? Yeah, and, and they get the emotion of a person in a true campfire conversation mm -hmm. versus this dry, stuffy, stiff uh, interview with a camera shoved in somebody's face. Right. And and it, a lot of people, you know how it is, the light goes on and they're like, uh, 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 well, <laughs> the deer came in and then I shot the deer. Where if you get them talking about their adventure around a campfire, totally different tone, totally different relaxation. And so it, that that's kind of the merger of of what we love doing, sharing our adventures on television and in short films with sharing our adventures on podcasts at an extended length. Yeah, that's, you know, exactly that. Because what we have said with our Blue Collar Elk Hunting podcast, and what people are listening to right now, is that 
we wanted everybody to have the feel that they are sitting right there with us around camp having that conversation, that they're privy to that conversation. And like you said, they get to hear the good, the bad, and the ugly when it happens. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, because giving passion and letting people understand that, um, sharing adventures, you know, talking about the things that we love to do, when, you, when it's being refined, when it's being edited, when it's been uh, so cleaned up, like you said, it's just a whole different atmosphere. And, and this is one way, and from the feedback I've gotten from so many people, you know, they feel like, hey, you know, now you guys are regular Joes. You, you are those blue collar guys out there, and you're just talking to us. And it's such a positive feedback on that. Right. Yeah. And, and you never changed. I mean, the, the crazy thing is it's just their, it's, it's, it's their filter that they're viewing either your show or your podcast or whatever through. And the fact of the matter is, let's be honest, uh, we're just normal people who maybe we're blessed and we live, you know, in some of the best elk hunting, uh, you know, or, or one of the best elk hunting areas in the country, or, or maybe we're close to mule deer, or, or maybe we're in the Midwest and, and we have some great whitetail and we live in Kansas and it's just out our backyard. Right. You know, that's just the, the, the hand that God's dealt us and we deal with it and we, we either embrace it or we take it for granted. And that's one of the things that I think I'm learning in my uh, in my golden years, not that I'm, you know, I'm 48, I'm, I'm getting up there, but is that to, in, to not take adv- advantage or for granted the things that I have right at my fingertips and in being able to embrace what I have, not looking towards what somebody else has or, mm-hmm. or, you know, oh man, I just wish if I just lived in Wyoming where they have this, this, and this. <laughs> You know, uh, whatever, because right. I, I used to think about that when I lived in Las Cruces, New Mexico, you know, desert. And I thought, man, I just, I used to love to spend time in Cloudcroft and Rio So I used to love sure. to go up to the, you know, uh, the Glenwood and, and Alma and unit 16A up there in the Gila and just, uh, because to me that was the mountains. Right. Cause, and, and I just thought this man, if I could only live here, well, then I moved to Colorado. Mm-hmm. And You're in I Springs have, now, right? I, I'm in uh, Windsor, which is about 70 miles north, just outside of Fort Collins, Colorado. Oh, okay. You're up higher north then. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, you know, just outside of the front range. I'm, I'm 30 minutes from Estes Park. You know, you got Rocky Mountain National Park is right here in my back door. And um, what I realized was that I miss the desert. I miss the desert. I miss the, uh, you know, so, so I think we as humans, part of our nature, uh, our fallen nature is that we've always, we're always looking for something better. Sure. We're never satisfied with where we're at. So I'll get off my little soapbox, but I feel that the inspired wild podcast, probably not unlike blue collar is our whole deal is to celebrate these small uh, adventures so people can learn to embrace them. If we don't realize what we have, sometimes we think that we have less, but if somebody that you look up to or somebody that you think has a little bit of knowledge says, Hey, what you have is pretty cool. All of a sudden now we say, all right, yeah, maybe there's more contentment, more, more, more ability to embrace that. 
Well, and so. that's, that's one of the things that, that I wanted to do was I wanted people to understand that you can do more with less that you just kind of looking on the opposite side of that, what that you were talking about is when you're in a situation, you know, you can actually celebrate, like you said, that situation, enjoy that situation. And, you know, I haven't, I've never hunted out of New Mexico. I've always hunted within three hours of where I'm sitting right now. And one of the reasons for that is, you know, I, I see all these adventures, uh, shows like yours and, and different shows that have been out there uh, hunting. And, and I'm like, you know, number one, even though I had the yearning to be able to do that, I did not have the funds to be able to do that at the time. And um, which is probably different now, uh, now that I'm later in life and have, have gone through working and everything like that. But, you know, a, a thing came across, why am I traveling you know, hours and hours to go someplace when I've got them right in my back door here. And right. I've got, I've got the opportunity and look at the opportunity I have that there are so many people out there that want to come here to where I'm at and enjoy the same thing that, that I have in my back door. So I, you know, I, I wanted people to understand too, that yeah, like you said, we're just regular people as regular as you, as you can get. The only difference is, is, um, we've made a lot of mistakes in 37 years of elk hunting and learned a lot of information doing that. And uh, it, here's our opportunity to share that, to flatten that curve, um, to let other people know that, look, did this with nothing, had nothing, but we're still able to enjoy the outdoor adventure of hunting and elk and chasing with my bow. You can do this. And I want to share that passion. I want people to understand that this is something that if, if they do it once in their life, it's going to change them. It's no, totally no, going to there, change them. There's no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. And how did you, you know, you've told me a little bit about your story coming uh -huh. out. I mean, tell me a little bit about the transition I was going to ask you this the other day, but I thought I'd save it for the podcast because uh -huh. I'd, I know the viewers or the, the listeners would like to hear that transition of coming out from, you know, the Carolina Eastern. Yeah. Coming out and moving out to New Mexico. <laughs> and you probably were a, a turkey hunter. Actually, um, <laughs> I was a, a squirrel. Okay. Okay. You know, uh, ducks, geese. Uh, with my bow, I hunted just about anything you could, in, including bullfrogs. I mean, I was <laughs> my my targets weren't very big. So when I came out out west and started, and that was the first time actually that I started hunting big game was out west. You know, back home, dove hunting and squirrel hunting is like a religion. Right. Right. And so we did a lot of that and I was introduced that by my dad. But when I, the transition is great. Cause when we came out here, I shot the bow and, and I ended up getting involved um, uh, there in Las Vegas, New Mexico, where my wife and I were going to college at Highlands with a, we started this bow group up there and it was a Las Vegas bow hunters. And in doing that, um, I, I got introduced to a lot of people from the area and I had been shooting the bow since I was young and I was, I'm a, pretty proficient shot I shoot instinctively and one way that I could actually pay for some things to get arrows and stuff like that was every week they had a an archery comp shoot a money shoot and buddy that was my uh that was my goal every week to win that so I could afford arrows or broadheads or something like that and um the transition happened 
basically just to put food on the table, Trev. I mean, uh, my wife and I, we got married at 20 while we were going to school, poor college kids. I come from a, you know, our family, um, you talk about blue collar, you know, my stepdad had to drive 60 miles just to get to work and we lived out in the boonies of the Carolinas. So hunting was something that was done in our family to put food on the table. And that didn't change. When I came out, my wife got married. You know, one of our concerns or her concerns was, you know, how do we survive? I mean, we're getting married at 20. We're going to school. We don't have jobs. And, and, you know, I have always had this confidence, this feeling just because of the skill sets that I learned out there in the woods of the Carolinas that no matter what I could survive and did that. You know, I started out deer hunting here uh, to put food on the table. I think I was uh, 20 when I first, I was either 19 or 20 when I saw my first elk out in the woods. And when I saw that booger, man, I was like, buddy, I am home because right, right. <laughs> I can put a lot of food on the table with that critter. And I was, uh, I got invited to go on the first elk hunt uh, with a buddy out of the bow hunting association. They said, just bring your bow, man, the way you shoot and everything, just come on. Well, we got the horses, you get your license, let's do this. And so my first elk hunt was up in the top of the Pecos wilderness. Um, incredible experience going up on horseback, uh, got camped out in there, but had never, the only thing that I had was basically my skills, my woodmanship and the ability to stalk animals. And that was my first my first adventure and um i hunted elk there and just kind of you know i i, I went out there and i said you know where are the animals going to be just like where deer are and different things and so i never used a call um i recognized their scent uh, i started actually hunting them by scent and you know, I got this big Italian nose here, kind of wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and I shot my first elk was a cow elk in a park, uh, coming out the edge, in a uh, up in the top of the Pecos Wilderness at at 35 yards, and that was my first animal. And the the great story about that was I don't know how I did it, but somehow I ripped my uh, my arrow rest off my bow, off my compound, and. And this cow walks out and is coming right into, into range. I'm sitting on a log, just waiting on something to come into the park. And I, I, I put an arrow on and there's no arrow rest. Well, again, everything that I've learned in life from as, as a kid was, if there's a will, there's a way. That's the one gift I, I received from my, my real father before he passed. He was, I was 13 when he passed and. You know, I looked down and said, shoot, don't have an arrow rest. Well, heck, I got a finger, so I stuck my finger out there, put it across, rested my arrow on it, pulled back, and uh, and took that first cow at 35 yards. And that experience started it all right there. Wow. that That is amazing. That is amazing. So when you, from the Carolinas, mm -hmm. were, were, you know, a lot of people don't realize that there's, that turkeys have made a, a, a research, you know, there's a lot more turkeys now than there was, especially in the early 1900s. But even in our lifetime, you know, we've seen a uh, quite a boost in turkey numbers. And I know a lot of guys, uh, 
Carolinas, you, you go, you come on down into Georgia, you come, you know, all that. It's a turkey hunting is mm-hmm. a way of life. So what I see a lot of people um, that are that are diehard turkey hunters, right. they have the ability to call, especially with the diaphragm, the ability to call. And so when they switch and they start hunting elk, they, they really do have an advantage when it comes to the manipulation of something in their mouth and not gagging. Uh, right, and right. So they come out here and they pick up uh, elk calling in the traditional sense of, of a diaph- using a diaphragm um, quite, quite easily. Um, so my whereas- transition was from turkey hunting here, though. I started oh, turkey hunting here. Okay. And so uh, I had used the diaphragm. And so my first call that I started calling elk with was a turkey diaphragm. Yeah, that's before they started making the elk diaphragms. Right, right, sure, sure. Yeah. So no, that that that's an exact transition, and you know, uh, I, I we did not have the turkey at home, uh, especially on the Outer Banks area where I lived there, and our focus was elsewhere. But when I came out here, a whole different world opened up. And unlike somebody like you, I mean, you come from Cruces. Tell us that story. Well. You know, for me, it was, well, I'll start at the beginning. Uh, I didn't, my dad didn't hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, so my uncles, my grandpa, my cousins, those were the guys that fished and hunted and stuff like that. And so um, I was introduced to that through extended family. Um, but I give props to my dad because when he saw my passion, my desire for hunting, encouraged it, he did. And he facilitated it. You know, there's mm-hmm. a point when you're 13, 12, 13 years old, you know, it, not every 12, 13 year old boy is ready to carry a high power rifle around the woods. Right. Right. And, um, you know, it, it, everybody's different. There are, I know many kids that, that, um, you know, are already at 10, Sure. Um, not, not that, not that every state allows that, but, um, in my situation, my dad carried the rifle. He actually started hunting with my grandpa and uncles and stuff so that I could come along with him. He didn't have any desire to kill a deer. Uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, in our family and, and everything we shot was utilized and eaten, but we also had cattle. And, um, so Mm -hmm. we had a lot of beef. So I, I, I have to be careful in the fact that I can't portray this. Hey, you know, this was the cheapest way for me to get food, you know, to, you know, we had other options. Okay. So it wasn't our sole source of protein, but, it was something that was we enjoyed and and I was crazy about. So here here my dad is, uh, you know, till I turned about I think I killed my first deer at 15 I believe. Uh and um he he at that point the first year I carried a gun, he went along, he had a a rifle, I had a rifle. Then from then on, he didn't go. He Not because he didn't, you. but he had that confidence that I wasn't going to be, I was, I was quite an energetic little lad. Um, and, and so I was a handful. I'm sure I, I, uh, I'm sure I, I just think my uncle and 
my grandpa, especially who's, who's passed away, who was my hero. Um, he, uh, man, that man had patience in spades. I mean, he just uh, was so good with us. And, uh, but I got to that point. So then I could hunt on my own. So how cool is that though? Because dad basically empowered you, you know, he, he gave you, a, he showed you a respect that probably was a driving force for a lot of things that you did after that. Oh, no doubt. Not just that, but my work ethic. My grandpa would, <laughs> exactly. would bring me out to the farm and, and I would do work that he could probably have someone else do it cheaper and quicker and better. And I would, I remember this long ditch that car, my cousin, who is, is, you know, uh, yes, and, sure and do. you know, that family, <laughs> yep. interesting, small world. Um, car was like my best friend. He was, he was like my older brother. Let me say he was, a, he's almost identical, almost exactly. Uh, he's a year and five days older than I am. Mm-hmm. And, and he's, he was a bigger guy still is. Um, and, um, but car and I were really close. So we were also real competitive and car and I would go in the summers and we'd work on for grandpa and, and you know, we, this one ditch, I just remember it seemed like it was 17 miles long, but I'm sure it was only, you know, a couple hundred yards long right. and we, we, we hoe that ditch. And, um, it was, it wasn't as much that he needed the ditch hoed as it was teaching us how to work, how to set a goal and achieve that goal. And, you know, why is it important to get up early and work hard? Well, when it's 100, 102 degrees in the afternoon, um, you, you know, you don't want to be doing the, maybe a task in the shade would be better for that time of day. So right. get that the hard stuff done early while it was cooler, things like that. And then as Carr and I developed together, uh, I shot my first buck a year before he did. So understand this. Uh, now you, you've just said that publicly, man. You yeah, realize that. <laughs> I know. Oh, I know. And I shot this little four corn. All right. And, and there, again, there's a, uh, we, we love each other like mm-hmm. brothers, but there's right. also that rivalry. And uh, I think a little bit of competitiveness, which made us better anyway. And car, uh, I remember the year I shot mine, I felt like, you know, like I had done it and I'd got this buck and little, you know, probably, you know, it doesn't score anything. Right. 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 But who cares? Right. None of us, nobody knew what score was back then. Nobody took a picture. Everybody, you know, but anyway, I I tell this story because the very next year, so I think I'm 15, he's 16 or maybe I was 14. He was 15. I think Mm -hmm. it was the next year car shoots his first buck and I didn't get a buck that year. Well, the difference was cars first buck was two Oh four. Um, (laughs) <laughs> and and I was there with him. I was mm-hmm. actually uh, um, the way we would hunt deer, as as you can probably relate, is is we would walk them up, and and we would go. You didn't wear binoculars. If you needed to look at something, you looked at it through your scope. Through your scope, right? It was a very different di- different uh, methodology, and um, the area in the Gila we were hunting, we would um, walk these canyons, and you know you'd have deer bedded. Uh, you'd bump them out and you'd shoot them on the other side of the draw. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Carr and I were, it was, it was right about lunchtime and everybody's kind of back at the Jeep after having gone out and, and walked these areas, some areas out. And so we know everything's bedded. So we're going to go and rock some canyons is what we called it. Right, Basically right. we're going to work the it. Edge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and get them to jump up and get a shot. Yeah. Um, uh, which nowadays I, I think of that and I go, man, I just cringe, but th- <laughs> that's what you did. Um, and, and so I picked, 
I was going to drop through this canyon and go on the, the thicker side, the north-facing slope side, mm-hmm. uh, because I was thinking, hey, I'm going to get – I'll bump something from my side. It'll run across at an angle, and then I'll have a better shot at it, you know, being the conniving little fart that I was. <laughs> and and Carr was walking more the barren uh, mesquites, um, you know, type, type of country, uh, cedar, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. side you know so it was a little more barren well as we're walking kind of parallel with each other um i hear something and i look over th- and there's a, a little arroyo coming off uh down to the main draw that you know it's just probably not 10 foot deep but you know how those cuts come down sure. kind of parallel or uh, uh perpendicular to the to the main canyon mm-hmm. well there was a big buck bedded under a mesquite tree and in the shade you know on the shady side at, at that time and mm-hmm. he jumped him up and I car probably wasn't 20 feet from when the buck jumped up. And you know, when a buck jumps up that close, it's can be quite a little bit frightening. <laughs> well, I hear, <laughs> I hear the buck jump and I go to look and that deer doesn't get 25 yards before car gets his, his rifle shouldered and, and shoots him. And he drops like a rock right there. Wow. So we didn't have any chance to look at the buck, you know, none of this. He saw right, right. antlers and that's what you did. You saw antlers and, and, and you, you know, Hey, your first deer, right? Right. So, so I, he doesn't even have a knife on him. I don't know why he wasn't carrying a knife. Um, <laughs> he didn't have a knife. And, and again, let me reiterate it's not about mounting it's not about any sure. of that stuff it's it's all about just taking this deer and then you pro you know process yep. it we we processed everything ourselves so i run down the canyon uh, all the way down and i get up to him and his head's in another big mesquite bush kind of upside down i mean he dumped him like a sack of potatoes and and so we go over there and um i hand car my knife and car kind of grabs him and slits his throat. Oh, wow. You know, just right. like, like he's going to get up and run off. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you know, again, we're, we're kids and, and it's first deer, everything. Yeah, we like hear that. a lot of stuff like that when we're kids. Yeah. All right. So, so then he reaches up and we pull the, 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 the rack out of the, out of the brush and mm-hmm. it's humongous. And um, again, even at that point, we don't really know what we have. Right. Uh, or what he shot, you know, but we're excited and congratulations. And we end up going and we can get a Jeep to the other side and we drag the buck down and, you know, gut him and, and drag him down and we're dragging him up the other side and get some ropes and, you know, that whole deal. That yeah. That's part of that, that the memory total adventure. I have. Yeah, yeah. That, that was the hard work. Right. But I don't remember <laughs> it being hard. I just remember what it exciting. Well, uh, we had no idea how big this buck is. We never put a tape on it, but we'd ruined the Cape. So we couldn't mount it. So of course, car, uh, he, you know, we skull cap it and, and then uh, let me, I know this is long winded, but I'm, I'm sharing this because this was my first experience as, as I became, you know, a lifelong hunter. These are, these are the memories I have. Right. Car later on in life moved to Cimarron. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, of course here he takes this big rack and, um, that he's been carrying around with him for, since he was 16 years old and, and it, you know, it just kind of 
sits in his barn, right? And and you know he he does it's 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 such a nice rack that you don't want to put it up on the outside and have it bleach out. Or, right, so he right. keeps it he keeps it in the garage or in the barn or wherever. Well, I killed a buck when I after I moved to Colorado, a huge bodied three point, and I wasn't going to mount him. So I got a hold of Kip Garrison, who is Carr's older brother, and I said, "Hey, I got an idea. Let's mount that deer, Carr shot. You know." Oh yeah, and, yeah with and, the cape that you have. Right. And so, uh, somehow I think Kip was making a trip up there or maybe I got Connie Carr's wife to sneak that buck rack out to us. And we, we wanted to do it in secret and, um, we thought we'd get away with it. Well, about six months goes into it and Carr's like, somebody stole my deer head and he's about (laughs) to call the sheriff. I think either in Cimarron and, um, it's a funny thing. Connie finally had to tell him no, or uh, had to tell him. Connie said, "Trevin and Kip are getting it mounted." So we ended up getting it mounted and surprised. We didn't get to fully surprise him because he knew it was getting mounted. But and then that's when we finally put a tape on it. And I, and Carr has that mount today. And and uh, you know it's two o four, and and wow. that's his first deer. I, wow. He'll he'll probably never beat it. I'll probably never beat it. Right. Um, which is okay. That's that's totally okay. But I I share that adventure, and I wish I had pictures from it. I yeah. wish I had more documentation where I could show you even more of what that is. Uh, you know what that adventure was and how it helped in developing who I am who, as a hunter who. Uh, who I've become. So, uh, you know, uh, that's kind of where I started. M- my start was through extended family, even sure. though my dad was part of it. And and so now my dad hunts with me, but he's a cameraman. He still doesn't actually carry a weapon. Right. He just enjoys filming and capturing the hunt. He's never had anything against killing an animal or, or it's just, it's not his thing. No, he's, but he wants to share the experience with you. He knows what that means. He knows the connection. So that's huge, you know, and (laughs) I mean, that's, that's the whole reason we do all this stuff. And you were talking about, you know, you wish you had pictures. Yeah. I wish I, I mean, we live in this media world. We're doing this thing right now. You work in TV, but you know something, Trev, there's some things that are just not meant to be recorded except for in our mind. And, uh, I, I think that's one thing that that original experience of yours, that's something that it will always be a vision and, a, and, and burnt into you and seared into you as part of what you do and who you are. And, you know, I, I don't think that was actually meant to ever be recorded any other way. <laughs> you know, and I, and I, I think with time, with maturity, mm-hmm. I have come to, I have come to agree, um, and understand that balance. It's not, uh, it's not every hunt, but there are times I try one or two times a year where I do go out and I hunt without the media collectors, you know, without the camera. I might, I, it's hard for me to leave without a camera, um, for photos because I, I sure Sure. enjoy taking photos, but, um, but the mindset is so much into that now. I mean, with what you do, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, and in part of Outback Outdoors, we're not just a television show. We're also a content creator for a lot of different different companies. So let's talk about Outback Outdoors. And, and, and you know, we've talked a little bit about Inspired Wild and 
what you're doing there with the, with the podcast, but you know, how did this come about? How did you, how did you go from, you know, uh, that kid in Crucis throwing rocks off the side of a cliff to get deer to, you know, a TV show and out back outdoors. Well, I, it, it started out, uh, I was always a good writer and that mm-hmm. stemmed from a sixth grade teacher I had who taught me how uh, we did a class on creative writing like most people do. And give that shout out. Come on. Yeah, is that it? is Don Knight. I could say he was, he actually was, he also is my uncle. Um, he married my, uh, my mom's sister. Don Nidick, they're at, they still live in Albuquerque. Um, I think he's a Lutheran pastor now. And that's in, in Tejeras area. Okay, Cause I remember listening to your last podcast. No, and, this is that, this is on my mom's side. Oh, okay. um, th- this is another uncle. Yeah. Um, and, 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 uh, they, uh, Don Nidick, Mr. Nidick, I called him then of course, or, or I could say uncle Don. Right. Um, but he did a great job of instilling in me a love for the written word. Uh, the assignment I, I so fondly remember was describe your favorite food. And he said, I want to be able to, to uh, use your senses, use all your senses, your sight, mm-hmm. your hearing, your sense of smell, you know, all these different things to describe this food. He said, I want to have my mouth watering by the time I'm done with your one page uh, story, you know, or, or description, your <laughs> creative awesome. story. And so I described a hamburger and um, I just remember trying to break down how would somebody who's, who is reading this, how can I make them hungry? You know, that was my challenge. And I fell in love with telling a story with the written word. And um, so uh, fast forward to when I moved to Colorado, um, I had at the time, all I ever done was, hunt public land and uh, research and scout using maps and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized there was a ton of people that didn't quite understand how, how they could utilize maps in their scouting. So I, I started writing some articles and querying. And that was back in the day when you queried magazines and, and you know, they would either accept or reject your article. Right, and, right. and so I got a couple articles um, printed um, and published in some different magazines. And I started doing some seminars on that. And I met uh, a gentleman named Mike Eastman, who was writing a book called Elk Hunting to West, uh, the Eastman way. And he asked me um, if I would write an, the chapter on elk hunting the West using maps, because at the time, the digital map um, platform that we have today was just barely getting getting going it was there was there was quite a few digital maps out there for gas and oil Mm -hmm. but uh they they hadn't been utilized in the outdoor industry in reference to hunting and and fishing stuff as much as they are now um you know like onyx you know i mean like you look at onyx what a great tool we have well we didn't have that then well that and that's what like five years old you know really i mean that people got to really know about it you know right yeah yeah it's taken some time but i think um at the time people didn't understand that when you're researching and scouting for elk Mm -hmm. um, a lot of times using a map you're not necessarily scouting for where you're going to see the elk but where you're going to see the elk from um especially in places like colorado where there's where you can get into some dark timber um you go into some places it doesn't do you any good uh, to to see elk there 
or because of the thick uh, vegetation, you can't see elk. Um, so what you're doing is you're looking for areas where you can actually see elk from. So you're, you're almost scouting for your vantage points that you exactly. can glass. Yeah. Right. Um, a lot of people come out to Colorado as a little uh, sidebar, uh, come out to Colorado and they, they take their bow for extensive walks, long walks in the woods. That's all they're doing. <laughs> and they're, they're, they don't realize that they're actually hurting themselves because they're walking throughout country. Their scent ends up blowing the elk out of there. They never even see them and they think there's no elk here. Where versus somebody who gets to an area and might sit all day long glassing until they see elk, then they go and hunt elk. And the difference is we think that the harder we work, the harder we walk, the, the, the more country we cover, the, the more, uh, the harder we're hunting. And, and that's not necessarily true. And this is something that I've come to understand over many years is, but rather the hunt elk that are there and find elk from a distance so that you're not disturbing them. So, I, those are the things I talked about. So I ended up writing this article or this chapter. Mike liked it. He published it. It's in his book. Um, after I left, uh, I ended up going to work for Eastman's. After I left Eastman's, they changed the the, the author status to Eastman staff. Uh, but in the first printing, it has my name and I have that book. So it's kind of interesting. But I, so I worked for Eastman's as the research editor um, for a couple years and 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 uh so that kind of got my door my foot into the door mm-hmm. of of hunting uh and the hunting industry uh in this media where you're presenting uh, your adventures in the written word and then uh, i had also started videoing a lot of my hunts and so of course they had started eastman's hunting journal tv and so i was filming um for guy and cameron haynes and some of these guys uh, run a camera for them along with filming my own hunts. And, uh, so when I left Eastman's, um, because they, they were in Wyoming and they were bringing everybody in house and I didn't want to move to, to Colorado. I stayed in Colorado. And so I just kind of went on my own mm-hmm. and Outback Outdoors formed in 2008, um, out of, uh, a desire to be able to tell a different story because at the time there was this idea of hunting television or or hunting videos. It was more videos at the time. Hunting television was just really getting cranking. Mm -hmm. Um, You had your Primos videos. Okay. And your Primos videos were, it opens up and a bull's bugle. Okay. And Mm -hmm. then, and then, you know, in, in 10 minutes they kill this bull. And then they're, then, yeah, then they're off and we call it whack them and stack them. Mm-hmm. Right. That's very exciting. I have a, a shelf full of Primos, the truth videos for Colin Elk um, uh, in VHS, uh, and, and I wore them out. I watched them all the time. But when I got to, to, to that point in, in my journey, if you will, I, I wanted to tell a little bit different story. I wanted to, to get more into the adventure side and this and that. And I didn't quite know how to do that. But as that came along, um, it was changing from the whack-em, stack-em, and going more to the creative. Um, I use Heartland Bowhunter as a great way because at the time, a Heartland Bowhunter was, uh, um, you know, you had your Realtree road trips, which really changed to hunting television, and it went more to the MTV documentary style. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> more about the whole whole 
uh, the whole, whole event mm-hmm. versus just the, just the hunt. You know, the you can the old uh, Bubba's out there and hey, I'm gonna climb up in this tree and you know and then you know two <laughs> minutes three minutes later this huge buck walks by and he shoots it. Um, right. now it was more about why you chose that area, what happens at camp, the camaraderie, it was a bigger picture. And I want, that's the story I wanted to tell. So I, I, so do you think that, 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 that original, that beginning, uh, that method that they were using in Primo, so it was basically because there were a lot of people that number one, didn't bow hunt, bow hunt, or think that an animal that size could be taken. And it was almost kind of like a, everybody watches as validation of look what they're doing, look what they're doing. And, and now I, it, it's, you know, it's pretty common practice. People understand what can be done with the bow. So now they've gotten beyond that, just that kill. And it's all about, like you said, about the adventure, about the story, about how they got to where they got. Well, and I think you have to look at the, at, you know, Will Primos, I have the utmost respect for him and what he did in the industry mm-hmm. um, at that time. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that this was also a promotional tool. Right. Let's exactly. be, let's be honest. This was a way for him to sell bad gum calls. Right. Exactly. Okay. And so why, if he's going to sell calls, he really needs to show his calls being used. And sure. the best way to show his calls being used is show his calls being used in a successful way. That's, Right. where the let's get right into the action let's put the bull down let's show what products we use okay mm-hmm. um but it was so you know they were so consistent primos did a good job of consistently giving you these different facets of, of whitetail and mule deer and and elk and then turkeys and then even waterfowl predator you know they, they took all of these different and they they really segmented them and you had uh, a lot of footage we just didn't you hadn't seen that before right. um you know, it's the normal hunting TV, and it still is, is they go out with an outfitter, um, you know, talk a little bit about that. And then next thing you know, the, you know, the, uh, the outfitter is putting them in a position or they're glassing up a buck. And that was the typical uh, format. Then, right. it, then the Wackerman stack them. Then came the more inspired creative. So, my journey was how do I get to that point? And it took some time. I look at our early videos and they were horrible. I mean, but part of that is because I'm a little bit have an artistic flair and, and for an artist, he's never really done with his work and you're never done learning. And um, so the techniques, the camera equipment, the, the editing, all of that has just, it's, it's just evolved through my taste. Um, through our other producers' tastes over over the the, the, the you know the, well, the last 10, 15 years, you know. And there's a lot of variables that go into that, and in, and in what your stuff happened like in the beginning. I mean, just the coordination of trying to get good video, trying to get good audio, trying to get shots, you know, while somebody's hunting, you know. It, right, it, uh, right. Yeah, it, and it's it, not just that one person hunting. Now you've got no. another person that could more scent, more noise. So, so it's even more of a challenge. Exactly. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not the greatest hunter. I'm not the greatest woodsman. I'm not the greatest caller. I'm, I'm, I'm okay at a lot of different things. But what I wanted to show was that even with that uh, level of, of skill, with determination and an, a willingness to make mistakes, you can go out there and be, be successful. I'm not a trophy hunter. I, I'm horrible about, um, you know, the, 
if a, a, a great bull, you know, in, in my opinion, in Colorado on a, a, an over-the-counter unit, you know, if a legal bull gives you an opportunity, you take it. No, most um, definitely. You know, and, and, I, and I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, man, but I sure hope our listeners heard that whole statement there, you know, because a lot of times, like you said, people see people doing things on TV and they think, wow, man, these guys have got it all together. I mean, they're great callers. They're great hunters. They're great in the woods. And here you have somebody, Trev, that comes out with this, you know, this so solid statement of, hey, I'm not great at any of that stuff, but I work my butt off. I'm willing to make mistakes. I'm going to keep persevering. And, and that's how I hope all of our listeners are hearing that message because that's exactly the message that, uh, that I want them to hear. That's the, the message I'm giving out there is that, you know, man, you can do this and you don't have to be the best, but you got to be willing to try. Got to be re- willing to continue to progress and find a way because it's not always, it's not going to happen the way it happens in the movies. <laughs> it just isn't. Yeah, that's true. That is, and I'm sorry I interrupted you there, no, man, but that no. was just so key to me. No, I, I, I think it, it is, um, you know, I, I want people to be entertained, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, I want people to be um, inspired. Brought, sure, for sure, inspired. But, but in that inspiration, I want them to be drawn into the story and connect with whatever, whether it's me or somebody else that's in that moment. I say it like this. I want to be able to take this, this package, this, this film, this video, whatever you want to moniker, you want to hang on it. And I want to be able to hand it to say someone like my dad or my mom who don't hunt and they watch it and they, they get a sense of the excitement, the adrenaline, Mm -hmm. uh, why I do what I do. They're not cold. They're not wet and they're not tired. Right. So, so they connect with the adventure without having to pay the price that I so freely pay in order to do it. Um, and then somebody else can see that and say, I can do that. And, and, and my statement to them would be, yes, yes, you can. Most definitely. Yeah. If you put in the time, uh, you know, so that your shots are accurate. If you, if you put in the time and you, and you scout, if you put in the time and you are willing to make mistakes and, and, and not beat yourself up because I think that's where it's at. We're dealing with a situation where hunting is extremely difficult and it's very easy at the same time. If you look at it logically, all you have to do is, is, is fool their eyes, their ears, and their nose. Pretty mm-hmm. simple, right? Mm-hmm. right. <laughs> Except that you're <laughs> on their own turf. You're against an animal whose main drive is to survive and, and, and re- recreate themselves you know, and reproduce themselves. Right. Um, and, and so with those topics as, uh, you know, if that's where we're trying to get to, if you can live in the moment and enjoy the adventure, then you are doing what you're doing. And I tell people just because you, you don't notch your tag doesn't mean your hunt wasn't successful. And as a industry hunting television in particular, We've done a horrible job, and I'm going to apologize for all of hunting TV because all I, I, not all I get, but I get quite a bit of, oh, yeah, hunting TV. Yeah, it's, it, but part of that comes out of jealousy. There's a lot of people that would love to be in my seat doing what I'm doing. Sure. Um, but a lot of it comes from 
in 22 minutes, we portray this sense of simpleness, of easiness. And every show, not every show, but most shows end with a kill. And so people in a unrealistic expectation come out west, talking specifically of elk here, Mm -hmm. um, and they expect to come out and hit their hoochie mama and have a big bull come running. And that is not what happens. Right. Not, it, it does happen occasionally, Sure, but it's not the norm. What the norm is, is you go out there and you work your butt off and you just hope to have a few quality encounters and, and, and hopefully you capitalize on one. And if you don't, the encounter was still there. The adventure was still there. The sure. adrenaline spike, your heart rate probably rose and, that's what we have to grasp. That's the end all be all. Yes, I have a, a freezer full of, of organic wild protein that I love to eat and I can connect with that whole cycle of hunting to freezer to table. But, but why do I do this? If you said, Trev, why do you do this? I do this. I started hunting for the adventure. I did not start hunting and I say this all the time, I didn't start hunting to save public lands. I didn't start hunting because I had to feed my family. And I didn't start hunting because I want, I'm a conservationist and it's, hunting is, conser, is part of conservation. And those, those are not my three motivating factors that I started hunting. I started hunting for the thrill. And, and it seems like we've come to a point in, in, in this world where, where it's almost – you're you're almost uh, ostracized if you say that. If right. You say I hunt because I want to go and kill an animal, right. and that thrill of testing myself versus the beast. Right. Um, and I don't think we need to apologize for that. Wow, I got up on a soapbox there, Joe. Yeah, <laughs> that's about okay, that. dude. But but, no. but that's 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 the root, and that's where Outback Outdoors came from, and. Um, you know, we have grown from there. Uh, we're in our 11th season on the Sportsman's Channel. We air in the third quarter and, uh, uh, you know, on uh, on the Sportsman's Channel, uh, 10 p.m. Eastern, which is 8 p.m. Uh, our time, Mountain Standard Time, um, right. on Fridays. And, um, you know, again, it's a 30-minute show, so that's 22 minutes of, of content. And then, uh, you know, you're, you're laying out there. And all, all the you know, previous fall, we've gone out and, and – done all these great adventures and then we get a chance to share them with the world. So it's, it's and a see, unique I, experience. I, and I was the yin to your yang because for me, when I started this, this whole thing out, yeah. And now I, I have to tell you, you know, hunting for me and my family, when I brought something home and it went on the table and people were patting me on the back for putting something on the table, you know, when I was, you know, here I am a kid and I've got uncles and my dad and stuff, you know, patting me on the back and giving me the sense of respect. I mean, there was just such a sense of, of accomplishment. But for me, you know, when I first started doing this big game hunting, my wife and I did not, I mean, we were about as low as income could get. And, uh, and, you know, so if I was spending money on a license at that time, it wasn't even as much as it is now. And you got multiple licenses on there. You could hunt a deer and elk and a bear on all on the same license. But when I was doing that, when I was buying an, an arrow, just getting aluminum arrows and broadheads, there was an expectation that I put on myself because of the money that I was 
utilizing out of our funds that if I was going to do this, um, doggone it, I, I'm going to bring something home. So um, there was that pressure. There was that, that pressure for me to feel successful at that time. I did have to bring an animal home. Uh, otherwise, I did not feel like uh, I did right by us. So uh, that was on the other side. Now, as far as all of that adventure and everything that goes in there, man, that's, that was just <laughs> really, you kind of use all of that being able to put food on the table because it is so much fun. And it's so exciting to be out there. Right. Right. right yeah. And, and I think, I think there are people that use it um, as an excuse uh, mm -hmm, sure. to go do it. And, and, and then, then you go, okay, wait a minute. For this most people, <laughs> for most people, Mm -hmm. let's be honest, if they don't live in New Mexico, like you were doing where you could leave your house, you could go out and hunt. Right. It was affordable. If you're coming from where you are from the Carolinas, where you're from, and then you go and kill an elk and this is how you're providing for your family. Um, do the math. The no, dollars don't no, make totally. sense. No, right. Absolutely um, not. Right. So people, and I'm not going to knock them because, you know, but in order to keep their wife happy, who didn't understand their passion, they mm -hmm. would say, Hey, I got to do this because I got to put food on the table. Well, if you're going to put food on the table, maybe you should kill some deer in the Carolinas that's, that's out your back door if that's exactly. the real right. reason. But, no, you're, um, you're totally right there because, yeah. I mean, even though, I mean, I, I'm able to justify having, you know, the, the cost of what I've done by bringing something home. But is, you know, it, that is the excuse that's uh, to be able to be out there to be in those woods, to have that adventure, to compete with that animal, uh, to put yourself out there. And like you said, you know, tired, cold, hungry. I mean, because, you know, I, I, it's nice to see all these things that people get to have out there and mountain house and and all the different things that they get to eat. But, dude, I was living off peanut butter and jelly and bologna. Right, so, right, you know, right. but you're exactly right. I mean, I, I was able to say and, and provide, and my family got to eat that wild meat. But, you know, when my wife was doing that math, she's like, hey, you know, uh, we could probably put enough meat in the fridge with what you're spending, you know, to go out there. And she's absolutely right. But, that was my drug of choice. And, and you, know? you, you, you fulfilled your soul. Exactly. I, mean, I don't want to get philosophical here, but let, there's something in us, innate in us, that I believe is, is in our DNA. Um, and, and, and maybe I'm getting overboard there, but you, you, you know what I mean? There's something no, within totally. us. I, I, didn't, my, I, I didn't grow up hunting. Like, like when I was three, um, I got – uh, uh, six shooters on my hip pop guns, you know, right. um, not to go hunting. I wanted to be a cowboy. Right. Um, right. <laughs> you know, but, but then as I grew older and got a BB gun and now all of a sudden, why was I drawn to, instead of becoming a marksman and mm -hmm. being a better shop shot, which is not a bad thing, which a lot of people do. And they put these tin cans up on, um, on the fence and, and then mm -hmm. they work on their marksmanship. My immediate response is I'm going to go hunt. And I would, you know, I don't know how yeah. many, no, uh, how totally. many, how, how many, many birds started like that, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how many birds, my, my grandma used to just say, you can't shoot the robins and you can't shoot the hummingbirds. Yeah, yeah, um, right. You know, uh, so, so, so that <laughs> I was immediately drawn to that. I don't know why. 
Um, and I don't question why. I, I just, it's, it's part of who I am. Right. And, um, and then as time went on, there became, and you know, I got older, there was a connection of also knowing where my food comes from. And that whole idea of, look, in today's day and age, if you ask the average young individual where their meat comes from, they say the store in a cellophane package and, and, and they, they don't understand Why would you hunt? Why would you hunt? Why would you kill an animal? Yet they go and, and, and they go to the store and they buy meat and they're doing the exact same thing. They're just doing it with a checkbook. Yeah, um, no, exactly. so, so I think part of that was, I didn't understand all that philosophical mumbo jumbo. I just knew that that was what I was called to and what invigorated my soul. Well, and you touched and, on the, another part of it, though, Trev, that you got to pull in there, and that's the brotherhood. I, that's that's those relationships that you have, that that time spent with your cousin. And for, for me, you know, it's been uh, – Yeah, the camaraderie. Yeah, mm -hmm. the camaraderie out there. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got guys that are going to be in elk camp with me this year. They – I mean, we're on, uh, we're messaging, we're sending pictures, we're talking, right. we're doing this stuff all year long. And, you know, we get to have those, la the, the laughter and, 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 you know, share those difficult times and pump each other up and, and, uh, and have that competitive rivalry that you were talking about. The things that I, I, I hate to sometimes compare it, but in some ways, elk hunters are a lot like elk in that, you know, the, they get in those little bachelor groups, you know, and, and they want to hang out with each other and, uh, and, and, and work that pecking order and all that stuff. And uh, I mean, we just enjoy that association. There's something about that, especially, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say that, that women aren't like that. Um, I'm not one, so I can't say that, but you know, there's something about guys wanting to spend time um, with brothers, with father figures and, and stuff like that. So uh, that's a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. 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 I, I imagine your memories with your cousin um, set the tone. Oh, there's no doubt about that at all. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind and some mm -hmm. of my best memories are, <clears throat> excuse me, of, uh, you know, the, I think of my grandpa had a Jeep Scrambler. And mm -hmm. so it's kind of a half Jeep, half truck, right? And uh, the kids would ride in the back. And I remember thinking how cold I used to think New Mexico was. I'm, I've learned <laughs> that actually New Mexico is quite, quite nice in November mm -hmm. um, compared to other places. But um, we'd ride in the back and we'd take this, you know, this old uh, canvas tarp and we'd wrap up in it, you know, as we'd go back on these old dirt two tracks and get back up deep in there. And then that's when we'd start hunting. And I just have these vivid memories. I can even now almost smell the, the, the smoldering of the campfire and, and the oatmeal, the oatmeal we used to eat in the morning, you know, just all of those things take me right back to, <clears throat> to that camp yep. as a kid and the allure of, of the wilderness. And that's stems all of that, experiential uh, memory and and uh, fondness that I, I had at that time just grew and 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 this is what has come out of it and, and that's so, what you've been trying to portray in your show right I hope I hope I mean that's yeah. that's the goal and um, 
you know, every year we, we, we get great response. Every year we learn something. Every year we probably um, uh, make mistakes. Uh, I, you know, it's funny because a lot of people, you don't see a lot of people miss right. on hunting television. <laughs> and I have shown almost every miss I've ever done because to me, I don't, I, I'm nothing out of the ordinary. I mean, <clears throat> if we go to a 3D shoot, I'm going to score pretty well. Um, mm -hmm. it, you know, I'm a decent shooter. I, I, where I thrive is in that moment. Sure. Okay. There's people that you, and you know them that shoot good on foam and you put a screaming bull in front of them and they, they basically fall apart. Right. And they sure. can't hit the broadside of a barn. And, and so I'm somewhere in the middle there, um, where I feel like I have the, a really good ability to live within the moment you know, I, I, I even many a times that bull's bugling and I know he's coming in and I'm just waiting for that shot. And I got that smile on my face because in my experience of, of having this happen time and time again, I remind myself to live within that moment and to capture. And luckily I have a, I have a camera running so I can relive it. But even in my own mind's eye and in my memory to capture that moment to carry it on. And, yeah. and then, and then, and then I get to relive that time and time again. And with the video that, that comes from that, uh, aside, uh, advantage is I can go back to 2009 when I did this, this, and this, and I could tell you about it, but then I could take that out and I could show it to you. And, right. um, and that's something that I think you don't realize you have until you look back and you have, you know, 15 yeah. plus years of it. Yeah. When you have, you have that record. You know, yeah. you, uh, of all those things that have happened there. And right. no, it's, um, you know, when you start talking about um, elk hunting, the reasons why we do it, the re you know, the things that you're trying to, you're actually, you know, you think about it, Trevor, you're actually trying to um, personify all of those feelings, all those things and all that adventure that you do through what you do in, in, in your show. And that's probably why as you get more ability and, and um, confidence and, and skill sets in doing that, it just, you keep trying to take it to that next. And right. you know, now I want to, I saw something on Instagram that, that you wrote and, and this kind of rings to me, this, this shows people out there um, how vulnerable, how real and everything we are. But I think you were talking about target panic mm -hmm. um, on your last Instagram and, you know, like you said, when you're in that moment, man, things happen for you. Uh, but you've actually, when it comes to just shooting, shooting, you, you came out very publicly and said, hey, you know, just like you, I, I have issues that right. I got to work through, right? Advanced issues. I have... I have therapist level issues. Um, and, and, and for those people that, that um, a lot, there's a lot of, there's a, a whole culture out there that doesn't want to say the word tar target panic because they're so scared of it and they should be. Um, target panic for those who don't know is um, basically you're, it, it's a, it's something that occurs and it happens when you shoot a lot uh, targets, uh, a lot of 3d stuff like that. Um, so I'm not going to tell you don't practice because I think you need to practice, but when you practice as much as guys do, they get to a level 
where you you go up, your your accuracy goes way up, goes way up, goes way up, and you get so comfortable with the process, you forget about being present in the shot, and your subconscious does not want your bow to go off. And and let me explain what I mean by this. Everything I'm going to tell you right now, understand, please, I did not come up with this. This is what I'm learning. This mm-hmm. is the journey I'm on right now. And um, Joel Turner with Shot IQ has really helped me understand what target panic is. If I can understand it, then I can put in place a, uh, a process that will to help me it. to <laughs> overcome it. Um, everybody has target panic at some level. Sometimes target panic is something that is not uh, an issue and the, 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 the people are, uh, their minds work differently and it doesn't become an issue at all. Mm-hmm. Other people get to a point like me where I was shooting at, at a pretty high level and then all of a sudden what I found was my pen. I literally could not keep my pen uh, anywhere on the target below. It just mm-hmm. locked and I could not for the life of me get my pen to rise and, and settle on the, the, the spot, the target that I'm wanting to hit, whether it be a, um, a, a dot on a target or, or a 3D, you know, mm-hmm. 12, 12 ring, let's say. Um, and, and I and I'm fought it. So what I first did, and this has been a three-year journey. So what, what, what that was is my, my subconscious mind not wanting my bow to go off because it's an explosion. Think about this. If you shoot a rifle, I, I lay down uh, behind a 270 and I'm going to sight it in and I shoot it and um, I have a dud round in there. If you were to put two, two, two live rounds, a dud round and another live round and I'm shooting, boom, boom, click. It's that jerk that I am reinforcing my body my subconscious reinforces my body to handle this explosion okay right. that's where you get that jerk yeah it happens okay? with a lot of guys that mm-hmm. shoot too much gun all right now in a situation with a bow you can't dry fire your bow so you're not going to be able to see if you have a jerk it, the right. way the bow is configured if it configured it won't happen you got you have to shoot a shot and there's so much of an explosion. It's not a loud explosion, but there is energy being transferred mm-hmm. that goes off that, um, and there's a lot of movement. You, you literally, uh, you know, you, you, you get your body ready and you get used to that movement or that gripping the bow or what, and, and, and you find out how with that natural subconscious protection of yourself, how to still hit the target, okay? Sure. So the only way you can avoid that with the bow is a surprise release. Mm-hmm. So what I did to begin with, because I shot with a regular hunting trigger release like a lot of people do, mm-hmm. and it's, you know, basically I command shoot it when I want it to go off, I can hammer that trigger, okay? Right. Or I can pull through and, and execute a good shot and get a surprise release. You can do that with the trigger, but it doesn't happen all the time. Um, and it's very hard when you get into... Uh, a method or a process that you've been very accurate hammering that trigger. So I went to a uh, back tension release or a hydraulic uh, friction release. A lot of people call them different names where the tension is set. You come to full draw, you let off the safety and literally the amount of tension you pull through the shot 
makes the shot go off. You don't know when it's going to go. It's when you're, you know, you, that, that, that release tension gets to a certain point, it releases the, the string, string loop and your mm-hmm. arrow goes down range. That helped a lot to begin with. The other thing was um, because it was always a surprise release. That's why it helped. Just the right. One. Sure. And um, so all I'm doing is focusing on target. And then once I'm on target, I'm focusing on pulling through. And then I switched, I played around with the, uh, that type of a release. I also uh, played with the hinge, which a lot of that really helped that target panic because the other thing that you need to do is if you can't, if you're struggling, you just let down. You have to be in control of the shot. You have to be able to stop it at any time in the shot process. And that helps you alleviate or get through that shot process. Uh, that that target panic. Now, again, this is all me regurgitating what I've learned from Joel Turner. Right. And um, so it's coming from my own spin or my own filter. The problem that came with that stopping it right there, I did pretty good. Okay. If I switched back to my hunting release, I was probably pretty good for hunting season. But the moment I went to, to, to where I was shooting consistently, with that trigger slash my hunting release, mm-hmm. I would find myself going right back into that same, um, it wasn't a shot, it wasn't a release, it was a command shot, and I wasn't totally present. Well, what I got to here recently was even with a hinge or a back tension, like a pull-through um, hydraulic release, um, I still had my arrow locked low or my i'm sure my pin locked low on the target mm-hmm. and i'm like why i'm i'm, I'm letting down and i'd let let down five times and i still couldn't get that i couldn't get past that and so what i'm working on right now which is i'm really encouraged and and my shooting has is i think i've i've turned a corner in this although i'm i don't ever think i'm i'm completely going to be over it i found that my subconscious had adapted. Mm-hmm. It knew I would let down. Hmm. So it wasn't, it still didn't want the shot to go off. Mm-hmm. Okay. It didn't mm-hmm. want the explosion. It doesn't want me to have to protect myself. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. It doesn't want that action to happen so close to me. So what Joel told me was no more letting down. You can't let down anymore. And he took me through this mantra of at, and my mantra, it's different for everybody, but my mantra is basically when I'm almost halfway through my draw cycle, I'm literally saying, okay, here we go. And as I come to my anchor and I settle that pin, I forget about that pin after the pin settled. You know, mm-hmm. I let that, I, I know how to aim. My visual cues will tell me how to get on target as long mm-hmm. as I'm staying within the moment and I'm in full control. And so then I'd get there and when I'd go to set, uh, you know, let off my, my safety and start to execute the shot, I tell myself, let's do this. What that does brings me right back in the moment. Mm-hmm. I'm in full control of that shot. And now the only thing I have to worry about is the execution of the process. I don't have to worry about aiming. I know how to aim. I've been right. doing it for years. My mind and my visual cues, it will put me back on target. And your pin's going to float just because that's the natural way. You have to be okay with your pin floating. I know some great archers from the Tim Gillingham and the Levi Morgans of the world where their pin floats a little bit. Probably a lot less than mine and yours, 
or, or whatever, you know, a normal person because they are such a advanced archer, but it's okay for that thing to float and you're floating there, you know, right on that vital. And all I'm thinking now is pull, 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 pull. And I'm pulling through the release. Right. And the release surprisingly goes off and the arrow hits surprisingly it's Mark. And I'm not stuck low where my subconscious is in, in and I know this is all a little touchy feely, but it's the truth that <laughs> my, you know, it sneaks in there. So, um, so that's kind of been my journey with that. And the realism is you can overcome it. You, sometimes you just need to reach out of yourself and get some help. And, right. um, and that's what I finally did being frustrated. It's funny because I uh, was so frustrated one day uh, a couple weeks ago and, and I'm, and I, and I was getting mad and I, Came, I went to came to full draws. I had my hinge and I didn't have my safety on. And as I came back, I popped myself in the lip and now I'm bleeding and I'm, I'm bleeding all over. I'm pissed. Oh no! And, 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 and I'm like, I want to throw my bow down. I want to put my bow up and quit shooting. And I said, no, you're not going to beat me. And I picked my bow up. I hooked my release, put another air on, hooked my release on. And I drew back and that pin was solid. And I shot that shot and it was the best shot I'd made in months. And I'm like, wait a minute, what the heck was different right there? And that's when I, exactly. Mm-hmm. Determination. That Determination. is the exact word that Joel Turner told me. You nailed it on the head, Joe, that it, that in the shot process, I had changed from doing a process where an arrow goes to determining I was going to be in control of that and shooting sure. that shot. And so, but I, but then as time went on later that day, I still found myself going low. So I said, okay, how do I get, I can't have somebody walk around and just punch me in the nose every mm-hmm. time I'm going to make a shot. No, you know, no, but I have to be able to be determined. So I, I went through and that's when Joe gave me the process and, and I, I'm not, I'm not saying that. So I'm done with target panic. No, it's kind of like an alcoholic. An alcoholic is always an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. They're never cured. And a drug addict is a drug addict. They're, they're never cured. It's always something they're going to be aware of. And I am, and that's why I wrote that post that way, kind of, almost like a, hi, my name is Trevin Soltis and I'm a, you know, right. I, I have short target panic. Um, owning up to something in a way to where I understand that that is there. And the only way I am going to get through that is through determination and this whole shot process. So, you know, and, take, and, yeah, but and, that, that's my story. As a coach, um, I, I constantly had to deal with, you know, when you deal with athletes, you're not just dealing with, with physical, you're dealing a lot with mental. And a, a lot of that, I think a lot of us, sometimes we lose sight of why we're doing something, why we're shooting that bow, why we're practicing um, strictly because we love to uh, love to send that arrow, love to see that arrow hit something. And, uh, and, and we get so, sometimes caught up in the intricacies or um the the fact that we've got to hit here we've got to hit there we got to do it's it's almost kind of like what you were talking about before as far as the difference in your goals of when you're hunting from the you know the kill to enjoying the moment enjoying the adventure um to where sometimes same thing when when we're shooting or if we're um pole vaulting or if we're throwing a jab it doesn't matter what it is sometimes we get so caught up we get in our own way and forget why we're there we forget that we're shooting for the love of 
shooting a bow or yeah, I'll give, I'll give you an example. So my story goes like this is that I, I shoot instinctive. Um, I, I was never really, I mean, I shot 3d shoots and, and, uh, I, as an instinctive shooter, I have to shoot so, so much, you know, and, uh, to, to imprint on my brain all the time. And I decided one year that, uh, I was going to go to one of these state indoor shoots here in New Mexico and had never done it. And I mean, it was 20 yards. I was like, wow, man, 20 yards. What is that? So I go to this indoor shoot and I walk in, everybody has target bows, have all this. And I walk in with my, you know, with my hunting bow with, with camo sleeves on it and everything, you know, using still my quivers on the side, everything like that. And I start shooting this competition. Well, it's a two-day shoot after day one, and, and they measure on, you know, you get your score plus X's and stuff like that. So I went there, and I just had a blast because, you know, I've never done this. I'm going to enjoy myself, and I'm shooting for the love of it, and I'm just – I get done, and, you know, I thought, oh, that was fun, and I, I left, and I come back the next day, and I really didn't care about score. I didn't care about any of that. I come back the next day, and when I walk in the door, all these people are like, yeah, that's the guy. Oh, yeah, that's him right there. <laughs> I'm like, what the heck, you know? And I go over there, and, it, you know, I look at the scores for the first thing, and, and I've got this, uh, my lead is like over the top guy, and, you know, they have uh, five X's, and I have something like 15 X's and stuff, and it's like, I, I didn't really even care about that at the time. So I go over there and I get my lane and I line up and all of a sudden I look back and there's all these people standing behind me to watch me shoot. Like I'm some kind of great shot or something, right? I kid you not, Trev, my very first shot. I mean, when I pulled back that day, the, the first day that target, that 20 yard target seemed like it was three foot wide. I mean, it was right. huge. And then when uh, all these people were there, it's like it went whoop and just, I mean, it got as tiny uh, as it could be when right. I looked at it next. And yeah, isn't that crazy? It's, it's unbelievable. And my, my very first shot hit the target to the right. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I jerked it off so bad. It was unbelievable. I was so shook up because I totally forgot. All of a sudden, I was shooting for these people behind me trying to show them that, oh, I'm this good shot that they think I am, and totally forgot why I was there. Right. And, you know, right. that's one thing that I started passing on to my kids and passing on to everybody that, that I coach is, you know, I'd have pole vaulters be frustrated because they're trying to get 13 foot or they're trying to get 13 six or 14. And I was like, you know, that's not why you do this. You do this because you want to fly high. Just fly. The rest of it takes care of itself. And, you know, uh, that was something that I had to teach myself. And, and that's what's so great is like you, when you're in the moment, when I'm in the moment and animals in front of me, I, I, I'm not worried about being a shot. Uh, I'm in a zone. I, I become a, I, I don't know, a, a, you want to use the term killer, but that's at that point, everything just happens right out of instinct and I'm in that zone and man, I'm there because of, uh, and I'm in that moment and the rest of it takes care of itself. Most of the time I don't even remember releasing an arrow and, uh, it's just, I, I think that's one of the reasons I've been successful. But when, when you talk about that, I want people to, you know, hear your story 
And, and, and I want to, with that, I want to reverberate to everybody is remember why you do this in the first place. Right. No, that's, you, you, that's a nail on the head. And part of that is, is uh, people talk about, well, I just went on autopilot. You never go on autopilot. If you, I mean, I understand the analogy, but if you, uh-huh. if you, you know, back in the day when autopilot was around for planes, I know it's different now, but if you put a plane on autopilot and tried to land it, you'd crash. Sure. And Randy Ulmer, who I look up to as not only a, a, a heck of a, of a target archer, but also as a heck of a hunter, puts it this way. He says, you don't want to be on autopilot. You want to be completely in the moment and you want to be aware of your surroundings, and, sure. but you want to execute a good shot. Mm-hmm. And I think what that says is just in that, in that instance, when you say, I don't even remember shooting that, you know, letting that arrow release. Mm-hmm. Well, <clears throat> what you were, you were so much in the moment mm-hmm. that, and you were so focused on that target that it, it, what that says is the shot executed perfectly. Sure. And um, because you don't remember releasing the shot and that goes to show you were in, you were in perfect sync. Um, It doesn't mean you weren't present. And I think that's the. No, totally present, totally within that and tunneled in, you know? Uh, But it's, it's like, like I said, when I, when I'm looking at that, when I'm looking at that spot and I see that fletch going in, you know, I've released that arrow hundreds, thousands of times. And, uh, and, and when I see that and I'm tunneled in and I'm focused on that, just like you said, I know when that release is supposed to happen and it happens. It, right, it goes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we're getting short on time and I, sure. I would love to get into some of the stuff you and I had previously talked about. I'd like to know <clears throat> when it comes to our trail, let, let, we're New Mexico boys. Um, you know, uh, I cut my teeth hunting elk in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. You spend a ton of time hunting elk in New Mexico. What would your top advice be for somebody? And let's right now, let's not talk about New Mexicans. Let's not talk about somebody who's it's in their backyard. Let's right. talk about somebody who draws the tag out of state and has to travel, come in and, and they want to do it on, on their own. Right. What would your first piece of advice be to that elk hunter? <clears throat> if, if they, if at all possible, find a mentor if at all possible. Um, if not, if they're going to come totally in on their own, um, my first piece of advice to you is, is do your homework. I mean, uh, you have things like this, you have these podcasts, you have so much, uh, on the internet that you can flatten your curve because it's really what's going to make the difference for a lot of guys. You're going to do the shooting, and most of these guys, you're hunters already. You're either coming because you're a turkey hunter or you're a deer hunter. So you know how to hunt. But the big disadvantage that they have is knowledge of the animal. And I think the more that you increase that knowledge of the animal, of, uh, you know, what drives them. And like you said, there's three things you have to overcome with them. Um, but there's another additional thing that helps us so much out here, and it's thing called the rut. It's the thing, the, the breeding instinct in these animals that, that actually mitigates those eyes, those ears, and the nose, not so much, but it can mitigate a lot of those things and, and put you in a position. It, you have animals that tell you where they're at vocally. 
Um, right. So uh, my advice to most people is, first of all, do your homework um, so that the more knowledge that you have and, and each area of different things, of your, your gear, of the, and huge, the animal, I mean, the knowledge of the animal that you can get right now, um, you know, I, my biggest advice is do your homework, learn as much as possible. And then when you're learning this and you're getting ready to go out there and to do this elk hunting, do anything and everything you can with everything that you have to find failure points, to find your weaknesses and overcome those failure points. What is it I'm going to have to do in order to get close as animal? Um, they are vocal. They do breed. They do call. If, if I'm not a caller, doggone it, I had better. That's a, that could be a failure point in a, in a situation. I'm going to learn everything I can about at least trying to be able to call basic calls for that animal. And what, um, what, what, what are those basic? Let's really quickly, just give me, give me, if I'm looking at what basic calls do I need to spend my time in June, July, and August driving around to and from work, um, uh, what, you know, cause that's for me, at least that's a great time for me to practice because nobody sure. else is in the car and I'm not, my mom, my wife's not mad. What right. do I need to work on? So your basic calls that you have to have is you have to have a cow mew. Uh, you have to have a bull bugle and understand if you can bugle, if you can bugle and make that then you can make any kind of bugle because now it's all about intensity, volume, uh, length, you know, that type of stuff. So if I learn just to get that cow mew, if I learn to be able to do a bugle, and if I learn how to rake a tree, I'm, I'm, I'm in high cotton because right. now I can do just about anything because when I get out there and listen closely, guys, when you get out there, one of the best things to do especially when you're dealing with a bull and you're in a situation, depends, there's so many variables times a year, but when that animal starts talking with what you've done, if you try to mimic that animal, you're not going to have to worry so much about, well, did I, was I too aggressive? Was I too, um, uh, not aggressive enough? You know, if you learn to just make those sounds so that you can mimic an animal as you hear it, you're actually putting yourself in good position because they're going to, then you're letting them escalate the situation. But that cow call, that bull bugle, rake a tree. Raking a tree is the the cheapest, most effective call there is out there. Especially I, I, early I, can't agree, I can't agree more. And I think people also, you hit it right on the head. If you're, if you're literally mimicking the sounds you're hearing, when they shut up, you shut up. Exactly. Okay. Don't just keep t uh, tweeting on the old uh, whistle tube. Okay. Um, and, and I, 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 I think for when I look at that, uh, you know, your cow muse, you, you could even break it down into just a simple lost cow, something Correct. simple. And then you could do an estrus and all again, all that is, it's not that different in the manipulation of the call. It's mm -hmm. the intensity and the length. And then with the bugle, you nailed it. On, on the head, in my opinion, you have a locate bugle, which a is kind of a, uh, and then you have your challenge yeah. bugle. Yeah. If you have those and you know how to pick up a big stick and rake a tree, mm -hmm. you, you, as you said, you're in the chips. Um, uh, I think the other advice I would give people is um, don't 
just go walking. Mm -hmm. Don't just go walking. If you're going to a bull that's bugling, that's one thing. If you don't know where the elk are, find the elk. If they're not talking because of one thing or another, uh, whatever, um, uh, that's fine. But use your eyes. Use your eyes. Don't, you know, use your optics. Don't use your boot leather. Um, hunt where, where elk are and you will be hunting elk. <laughs> right. uh, many a time, um, especially in Colorado, with the amount of elk we have, which in turn spirals off to the amount of hunters we have also, and I invite non I'm not one of them guys that say, Oh, we don't have any elk in Colorado. Don't come here. I'll come, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I want it. I want everybody to have this experience. Um, but if elk have been bumped out of a basin that you saw them in, in July, mm -hmm. okay, we, we, you and I can probably both agree that elk usually rut and usually calve in the same area, unless they're by Maybe some out, outdoor uh, phenomenon or pressure, they're moved out. They're going to sure. do the same thing. So if they're not there, you need to find them. Correct. And once you find them, then now you can start to, to, to hunt. The other thing I would say just to throw out there is for people to understand the wind. I think it's very important that uh, along with body, uh, you know, body language of, of wildlife, that's important to understand habits of wildlife. That's important to understand. Um, what they need, that's important to understand. But you need to understand wind. And if you come from uh, back east or the Midwest and, and whitetail and turkey and stuff, you know, has been your primary experience. If you've hunted whitetail, you understand wind to a point. Correct. But wind in the mountain is very, mountains is very different. And I would tell people to understand how thermals affect predominant wind because a lot of people make mistakes let me give you an example. Here's a way people make mistakes. I'm sitting on this ridge and there's a bull bugling in the bottom mm -hmm. and the sun has just risen up and it's a gorgeous morning. And this is what you dream about and wait for all year long. And the guy bails off meh, into that draw and blows all the elk out mm -hmm. because your thermals are still going down. Mm -hmm. And so it's the hardest thing in the world. But if you'll sit there and wait until that sun you sit, just sit there and wait 30 minutes. All of a sudden the sun rises and now the thermals are rising. You, now you can get down in that draw. But even when you hit a bench that is shady, the crazy thing is people don't realize that, well, my thermals are rising. Yeah, but you got halfway down the draw and you hit a bench that was shady and all of a sudden you got onto that bench and now all your yep. therm, the thermals switch. Correct. So they're like, it's swirling winds, swirling winds. Well, yeah, it's swirling. The swirling winds is more when a thermal meets a predominant wind. What you're dealing with is just thermals and it's sure. still in the morning and you don't have a lot of wind. So it's hard. You can hear the bull's bugle from a long ways away, but, but the thermals are going to dictate your scent. So sometimes you even have to stop halfway through your approach and let the sun get even higher. And, and you make sure, or sometimes what I'll do is I'll skirt a bench and stay in the sunshine in the edge of the timber, but in the sunshine and get around that because that I can guarantee that my scent then is being taken lifted. Up. Mm -hmm. Sure. <clears throat> now that's a very brief overview, yeah, but totally. if you do that, and of course I'm always puffing, I'm always got my little wind checker out because the moment I feel that on the back of my neck, I could have done two, three, four hours of work. And if I would have just waited 15 minutes, 
right. could have got down into position and had a true encounter versus my eagerness causes forces me forward and um and, and i blow the experience not that there's not a time to go because sometimes there's a time to go we got to get sure. there now yep. maybe you're trying to cut a bull off that's heading to a saddle or whatever that they, there's a time and a place for that but understanding that i would say that's another uh piece of advice that for people that are coming out is to is to study how does wind affect um how does wind in the mountains affected by thermals and predominant wind. If you can start to understand the basics and understand what the heck, why is my wind going down? It was sure. just going up. Well, you're standing in a shade on a shady bench and the thermals aren't rising here. Yeah. You just think about that dry ice thing, you know, the cloud coming off dry ice, how it falls. So, you know, as a as a cooler and it's falling down and it's rolling off. So I, what I tell people is I tell them down parallel downwind parallel to the thermal. I, I never want to be behind an animal either way, whether the thermal's going up or going down because they are going in a direction because they have thermals at their advantage. So, right. um, you know, you always got to, uh, I always like to parallel and if there's any kind of breeze, be down on, down on that breeze parallel. And, and that generally keeps you at the same level as that animal. Um, uh, when they're moving up a ridge as well. I, I, I don't want to trail behind. I want to be parallel on the side of that animal. So that's kind of how, you know, yeah, and, and, basic. And, and really, have you ever been able to catch an elk? I mean, you can run and an elk can walk faster than you oh, can. Oh, so, sure. so I, you know, one thing I always say is don't chase elk because you, yeah. you'll never catch them. No. So in a situation, your best bet then is to let them bed mm -hmm. and then shadow and, and, and then try to call them yeah. up. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep, exactly. Dude, this has been a blast. Yeah, so. we should do this again. This is definitely something that, uh, you know, I could, we could get into this, we could get real technical. And I think there's a time and a place for that. And, and I'm right. just glad we, you know, kind of set this, this uh, uh, foundation of, of who you are, uh, blue collar elk hunting, you know, the, the podcast you guys are doing, what you're doing. And then of course, for us, for Outback Outdoors, what we're doing. So definitely. Uh, and Trev, I, I, I want to thank you. I, I totally enjoyed this. Um, I hope everybody out there really listens to some of the messages within this because that, that's the big part. You know, we can always talk about strategy. We can always talk about technique. But I think some of those internal messages, the things that you're going to hold inside um, that are going to help you overcome and like you said persevere in a lot of things and be determined with stuff i think that's the messages that i want so many people to to get out of this yeah, so no i agree um, and, and and for me you know I, I, my little tagline when i sign off on the podcast is really that, to encourage others to to get out and wherever their wild is whether it's in the midwest on their grandpa's back 80 you know or mm -hmm. or, or or maybe it's 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 just some 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 BLM out on the edge of town, right. some public land out on the edge of town to get out there and, and, and embrace that wild and, 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 and love it and, and, and enjoy it and, and, and feed your soul. And, you know, that's, that's kind of what my goal with inspired wild podcast is. is to so sounds like a great way to end it. All right, yeah. guys, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.